Mike Lesseter here from Rural Lifestyle Dealer and Farm Equipment Magazines. If I sound a little bit different today, it's because I'm recording this from my hotel room. I'm on the road picking up material for yet another How We Did It podcast. We've got two special bonuses for today's episode. First, you're getting a new voice for the first time, as managing editor Lynn Wolf helped me out when I discovered I needed to be in two places at once. Second, her interview will take you into a product category that we haven't yet covered in the series. So look at that, two extra bonuses before we even get to the first question. But anyway, for today's recording, our own Lynn Wolf sat with Bob Walker, the second generation owner of Walker Manufacturing. They met early on the opening morning of the GIE Expo in Louisville, before the doors had opened for the crowds. And he tells the story, he took a job in a construction company just to buy groceries. I was uh, shoveling the dirt out and he said the wind up in Wyoming was blowing it, was blowing it back in. <laughs> and uh, he said, I, pr I prayed a little prayer. I've worked hard all my life. Is this where I'm supposed to end up? So he said, I came home that day and there was something in the mail that was the beginnings of a new opportunity. And that new opportunity came from a group of people in Greeley, Colorado. That's Bob Walker talking about his late father, Max, getting a second chance after the company moved to Wyoming, fell into bankruptcy, and was closed by the bank, and how it eventually led to a company that Max and his two sons, Bob and Dean, would grow to a leadership position in a totally different product segment. Lynn covers a lot of ground with Bob in today's recording, including golf carts, power trucks, tractor cabs, and several failures and near failures that this family got through by continuing to look up. And the we think we can build it better mindset that led this father and son to design their own zero turn mower when the push mowers and riding mowers left them wanting on their own Colorado residences. You'll also hear Bob talk about subjects and personal promises that some execs aren't always comfortable saying publicly, but the walkers do so without apology. Sometime when you have a moment, take a look at their core values on their website which are shared and remembered via the acronym of Opportunity. So let's go, the How We Did It podcast conversation with Walker Manufacturing's Bob Walker, told from the interviews and questions of our own Lynn Wolf. We definitely want to talk about the beginnings and, <laughs> yeah. and your memories of that time and, and sure. what you know about, about your dad's time. I lived it, so <laughs> almost from the very beginning. What's your earliest memory of the time? My dad made a little caterpillar for me, a little miniature caterpillar, and that was when I was in the first grade. I got it for Christmas, so that's 1953. I guess that's okay to have that kind of a date because that's a beginning date. <laughs> so, and at that point, did you know what was happening with, you know, with your dad and what his plans were? Well, my dad uh, had grown up on a farm in southwest Kansas uh, and was farming with my grandpa and a couple uncles, and he began to look around and, and realize that the trend that has so clearly happened was already underway, where family farms were getting bigger and bigger, and fewer and fewer families were able to make a living. And so he, he saw there was no way that four families were going to continue to be able to have a lifestyle off of the farm. And uh, so he began uh, also looking around southwest Kansas out there, uh, a lot of the small towns, there was a manufacturing company and uh, the story would be generally a farmer would make something, uh, usually related to agriculture and improvement and the neighbors would see what this farmer had created and they would come and say, well, I want you to make my, me one of those too. And 
next thing you know, they're in the business of ma- making things. And my dad was fascinated with that. He, from a farming point of view, he always enjoyed the, the machinery side of the business more than the animal side. And so my grandpa was more the animal side of things. And my, my dad loved machinery and he began to hone his skills as uh, somebody that could go to a farm shop and actually create things like the little caterpillar that gave him an idea that what if he could get into the manufacturing business and establish. And about that time, this would be in the mid-50s, a friend of his who was a uh, salesman uh, came to my dad and said, "Uh, I think there would be a market for a gasoline-powered golf car. Now, my dad never played golf, never even really cared about the game of golf, but He took that as a challenge to see if he could build a gasoline-powered golf car. Back in those days, a lot of the cars, golf cars that were being used for rental, the batteries just wouldn't hold up even for one round of golf. And so if you were using them in rental, uh, the idea of a gasoline-powered golf car was interesting. And my dad also had ideas about creating something unique in in its design. So he used a lot of, instead of making a boxy little thing, he made a a golf car that had nice curves to it. And... uh, it was very much a product of the 50s. That's back in those days, cars had tail fans and, and the curves to them. And so the, the golf car was created, the first one in 1957. It was a red color, but then later on, some of them were painted pink and uh, turquoise and uh, the colors of the, of the 50s. But after the first prototype and then a couple of years of working after hours or moonlighting, he farmed during the day and make golf cars at night. <laughs> Finally, enough business was created that he was able to build a small little building right close to our house, just maybe 50 yards from our house, and begin to manufacture golf cars. And it became a full-time business then in 1960. So that was the very beginnings of, uh, of the company. My mom worked alongside of my dad. The thing to re- <laughs> kind of remember is that my dad, because of World War II, didn't finish his college education and he had no training in engineering, manufacturing, business, marketing, none, none of the things that you kind of need to know about to, <laughs> to be in the manufacturing business. But he had a dream and he had the courage and the risk-taking in his blood to basically say, I want to do this. Uh, My dream is to get in the manufacturing business. And with a lot of hard work, it became true. It became reality. I love the pictures and some of those, those old, the golf car and- Yes. They were, the designs were just so interesting. And and, uh, you know, you were talking about the 50s and you know, really the Jetson kind of look to things. Oh, yeah. I was looking at some old letters my dad had written. He's passed away in 2011, so, but some letters that he'd written back in the, when he was newly married back in the early 40s and uh, before I was born. But, uh, my dad had a, a cursive handwriting that uh, you don't often see today. I mean, cursive is hardly even used today, but he had apparently been taught penmanship and he had a bold kind of a scripted style that, that, that as I saw it, I was, I was reminded of the golf car. I mean, it had those French curves to it and, uh, you know, cur- kind of like a cursive style. And it's so much easier to build something, a, a box. I mean, you can, you can, anybody can build a box, but to build this unique shape uh, was, was amazing to think about, you know, that that was his idea. And the earliest golf cars, some of those, some of those shapes were bent in the fork of a big maple tree uh, they're out, out in the old farm shop. There was a tree standing out there and it had a fork in it and he would take, be able to take some of the metal and 
get in that fork and bend on it and then create the shapes. Uh, he would use a chalk and draw on the floor of the shop the shape that he wanted to achieve and then kept bending it until he got exactly. Later on, he built tools to do that bending work, but uh, in the beginning, it was all hand, you know, hand, hand work. And, uh, every, so every machine was unique. Well, it, yeah, in, the, in the very beginning, yes. Uh -huh. Anyway, you just think about it. He, he had so little to work with, but he, what he did have, he took and went to work <laughs> and made, some, made something. <laughs> But uh, then after a few years of the golf car business, uh, Dad uh, became interested in a little utility truck. Back in those days, there were a couple companies, uh, Cushman being a primary company, that made little trucksters, what they called them, and they were little off-road trucks. The forerunners of today's utility vehicles that are so popular, but uh, Dad went to work and what he'd learned on the golf car created a, another product called the Walker Power Truck. This was a little off-road truck and uh, his idea was the golf car was just limited to golf whereas the little truck could be used in a number of places, industrial uh, plants and resorts, airports, all kinds of places that are today these little utility vehicles are used in those kind of ways and uh, so he finally sold the golf cart project to another group of people in Salina, Kansas and took those funds and put them into the truck business and we started making Walker Power Trucks. And uh, the golf car we made, we think, don't have good records, but we think about 1,000 golf cars were made. Even today, if you go on the internet and look up Walker Executive Golf Car, you'll find some collectors and people that still have these and have restored them or preserved them even a product of you know 60 some years ago <laughs> same thing for the little truck look up walker power truck and you'll find there are collectors uh, that have them and have restored them back to kind of like when they were new <laughs> so now the power trucks about how many did you make of them? Uh, about a thousand of those were made as well during the 60s up to 1968 the next thing that happened is dad struggled, the company struggled from the very beginning to have enough capital, enough money to really, not that as farmers, they had a little bit of money, but they didn't have enough real capital to, to finance. And so we're depending on a, on a bank, especially the golf car and the power truck to also were seasonal products. That is, they m mainly sold at certain times of the year and, the, and uh, the other times was more a time of building up inventory and you had to have the cash to, to be able to do that. And, uh, the local hometown bank was basically a farming bank, an agriculture bank, and so when my dad started wanting to borrow money to buy components and materials, the bank at first kind of worked with him, but then later on they became basically scared, I think, of what we were trying to do, and they, it was unfamiliar to them. So they began to back down our credit line. It was kind of like putting their hands around our throat, you know, choking us. My dad went to a number of other towns around our hometown looking for another bank, Dodge City, Garden City, Pratt, Kansas, or all places that I know he went to talk to banks. And each one of them said, well, uh, we'd love to be your bank, but you're gonna need to move your business to our community. Uh, we're not gonna finance an activity in another, which was, that was the way banking was back in those days, and very territorial. And um, so along came, uh, dad met some people from Casper, Wyoming, uh, through a, kind of another story, but these were some business people who wanted to, um, invest in a business and bring it into their, their economy there. And Casper's mainly in a, a mining and oil economy, and uh, they wanted to diversify it. So they bought the whole company and moved in 1968, moved it up to Casper, Wyoming. And my dad, at that point, uh, 
had stock in the new reorganized company, but he didn't have control. And so over the next couple of years, uh, under new management, new financing, the company continued to make the little Walker power trucks. But by 1970, the company went into bankruptcy and the whole thing was closed up by the bank. They told my dad and uh, for another, the next year, there was talk about refinancing and reopening the company, but that never happened. That was the, the end of it. And my dad, at that point, lost everything. I mean, he, <laughs> like he, I remember him saying to me uh, and, to, and to others, I, we lost everything except our family and our faith in God. Everything else was gone. Was, was gone. Sorry, I get emotional. But uh, everything else was gone. And he tells the story, he took a job in a construction company just to buy groceries. And uh, during this period, he, one day, this construction company, he said, I was, I was um, told to get down and uh, clear some loose dirt out of a footing. They were getting ready to pour a concrete footing for a building. And he said, I was uh, blo- shoveling the dirt out. And he said, the wind up in Wyoming was blowing it, was blowing it back in. <laughs> and uh, he said, I, pr- I prayed a little prayer. Lord, he said, I've worked hard all my life. I'm 48 years old, and is this where I'm supposed to end up? <laughs> uh, so he, 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 he said, I came home that day, and there was something in the mail. I've, not, I've forgotten what it was, but a letter or something that was the beginnings of a new opportunity. And that new opportunity came, uh, only came from a group of people in Greeley, Colorado. My dad had known one of the men from Kansas days, and this man uh, was part of a company, a sales uh, company, who was primarily selling agricultural items. And one of the items they were selling was a tractor cab cooler. Back in those years, a lot of tractor cabs came after market and they didn't come with refrigerated air conditioning. They just, uh, they just put a cab on a tractor and, and of course it needed to be cool, uh, cooled and, and uh, air, air filtered if you were gonna try to operate in a cab like that. So out in the West, you could use an evaporative cooler or a swamp cooler, some people call them. This company was selling a, a particular unit that had come from Kansas, but they were having trouble with it. It wasn't working very well and so the man that my dad knew from Kansas approached him and said to him, would you design an improved version of this tractor cab cooler? Well, my dad went to work on it. And my brother at that time was in his early college years. He took off a semester. Together they created a, a, a new unit and the company was called Bico, so it was called a Bicool. And my dad took the design rights and there was a patent involved and sold that all of that whole package then to the people in Greeley and took the money that, he, that they paid him and, and went and bought his tools back from the bank, which had been locked up in, by the bank in Casper, and uh, reopened in 1971 and 72 to manufacture tractor cab coolers, uh, something that we was completely off of our radar as far as golf cars and trucks, but now tractor cab coolers. But uh, over the next 11 years, we managed to manufacture 70,000 tractor cab coolers. And- uh, Were you part of the business at this point? Or uh, I didn't, I was, all this happened, the bankruptcy uh, of the company and uh, the move to Casper, 
and uh, the development of the tractor cab cooler and the, and the, manu and the early manufacturing of it, all that, ha I was in college and uh, then took a job at Cessna Aircraft Company after graduating and worked in for six years at Cessna Aircraft in Wichita. That's where I was. My brother on a different track graduated from high school, went to college, and uh, both of us in 1975, he graduated from college, I came out from Wichita. We came to work together with our parents in 1975, and that's my first real entry into the, into the company after college. So when you were seeing these different inventions and you were seeing some struggles and some success and then some failures, how do you think that influenced you, you know, owner of the company? The, the entrepreneurial spirit has a risk-taking part, it's just part of your, your, your DNA uh, to, to take calculated risks and know that sometimes, even doing your best, your failure is a real possibility. And uh, there's no bailout plan. People like to think about, well, I'll, I'll have, there's a safety net or somebody will bail me out. Well, at the end of it, a real failure, you're, you, you really have failed and potentially you can lose everything. And uh, I, I mean, I, that's my dad and I guess you could say my brother and I have some of that same spirit in us to the point that, yeah, we can look back and, uh, I mean, the company has nearly went broke another time that I haven't told you about yet, and, and uh, it concerns the lawnmower project, but uh, anyway, yeah, failure, and particularly, I always admire the women. Uh, the, my mother was, I never, <laughs> I never saw her question my dad's leadership in the company or or question whether we were doing what we ought to be doing she I, I never heard that she was always supportive whatever my dad was trying to do she was there right in the, right in there uh, not being critical I look at, at my wife and my brother's wife and some of the same characteristics are there the one of support and and willingness to take risk when I think a lot of People, um, and not just women, but men and women, both want security more than they want to take. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's just, it just stops, though, a lot of the birthing of new opportunities <laughs> where, where risk is involved. We'll get back to Lynn Wolf's interview with Bob Walker in just a second. But first, a word about Osmondson Manufacturing, which continues to support us in these chronicles of family-run equipment manufacturers. Osmondson has a storied family history of its own dating back to 1903. Visit them at www.osmondson.com. Now, back with Lynn in her early morning chat with Bob Walker of Walker Manufacturing. So now we're at 1975, and to leave your chosen profession at that point, which was aeronautical engineering, was it the pull of the family? It was. I, I'd always dreamed about working with my parents. And uh, I mean, when I first got out of college, I probably would have gone to work with them at, right then. But there was nothing to come home to, so, so to speak, because the company was in, in the, bad, the bad time. And, but by 1975, uh, the other thing that happened is the, the company had moved to Colorado to be closer to the people in Greeley, Colorado. So we moved to Fort Collins in 19, the fall of 74. And uh, I came out to visit and saw what they were doing and, and uh, decided, we decided, my wife and I decided to take the risk uh, and move, make the move and uh, just to follow a dream that, that I had always had to be a, a part of the family business. 
So it's 1975, and, and then talk about the beginnings of what you call the mower project. So talk about how that sure. came to be. We're making tractor cab coolers. That's paying the bills. We're not making a lot of money, but we are p paying wages and making, and we're putting a lot of effort into the into that whole project that is the tractor cab coolers. We also developed a couple other versions of it that uh, in, those, in those years, but that helped maybe fill out the line a little bit. Uh, one was a, a version that would be, go on top of uh, road vehicles like campers, motorhomes, and so forth, a, a, a cooler unit that would go on top of those. Uh, but um, we were just out minding our own business, so to speak, uh, and in the spring of 1977, one bright day, my dad and I began to talk about maybe buying a, a riding lawnmower just for our own personal use. We were using push mowers on our properties. Again, I don't, we both had, again, maybe about a half acre. And uh, so we thought, well, let's, let's go buy us uh, a couple riding mowers. So we went shopping and, and bought a couple little rear engine riding mowers with steering wheels and gear shifts. And, and we didn't do a demonstration. We just went to a showroom and bought them, you know, just assuming, and it was a good brand. It was. Uh, I won't name the brand necessarily, but the best available. After a few weeks of using the mowers, uh, my dad and I started talking to each other, and we said, you know, we made a bad mistake. We shouldn't have bought those. These mowers are not helping us out. These mowers were, were not very maneuverable, and so it, it was actually taking longer to mow the property. The property didn't look nicer than did before. And the, we were also using a grass collection system. That was important to us out in our climate to, to catch the grass clippings. And the catching system didn't work that nice either. It had a tendency to clog up. And so anyway, we said, you know, we think uh, we can make a better machine uh, than, than what's available here on the market. And uh, we had a little slogan, if you can't buy it, build it. And so we did. And so we, we my brother and dad went to work. I might say quickly, my brother, who has a degree in business administration, inherited the ability to design and build machines from my dad. I have a degree in mechanical engineering. I'm a book engineer, but I don't have my brother's gifting. You know, I, I, can, I couldn't keep up with him in terms of his ability to design and build. I can do the book work and the layout engineering drawings, which I did quite a bit of that kind of work. But um, my brother was the real design force behind the creating the first Walker Moore, and my dad worked with him, I, I would say it that way. Uh, my brother's a tremendous, has a tremendous talent, even though, again, he's not formally educated in, as an engineer. Uh, so anyway, we built the first prototype in a few weeks, and by the middle of that summer, 1970, we're mowing grass with our own little mower that we've created, and uh, we began to learn a few th things about, we looked at, this is Kansas comes back into the story too because back in those in that time there were XL Hustler, Grasshopper, Dixon were three companies that were making steering lever. They were pioneers that were making steering lever or ZTR style machines. We were fascinated with that design because that was one of the problems that we found with the other mower with the steering wheel is it wasn't it wasn't very maneuverable. Especially Grasshopper and XL, they had chosen to make rather large versions of, of machines with, steering, with their steering levers, uh, what I'll call industrial-sized machines. And so we were trying to mow residential properties, and it wasn't the right size to take a big old machine. Even though it would turn right around, it was too big to fit on the property. So our vision was to create a very compact, small little machine with steering levers on it to, that would fit in on a residential property. That uh, was one of the key, key ideas, uh, a simple idea, but still one that uh, helped us 
get into the market. Um, another thing we did that was unique is we created a built-in grass catching system. There was no uh, separate, most everybody created, a, and th these other companies included, would uh, make a side discharge mower deck. And then if you wanted to collect, you'd put a big tube up on the side and, and a catcher on the back. And we had the, the idea of bringing the grass through the, through the middle of the machine building the, the, the system right into the tractor from the, and with a rear discharge deck. Our first prototype, which we could show you, had that, had that idea in it. And uh, so those were a couple things that, uh, that we looked at to, to make. We didn't just copy what somebody else had done. We wanted to create our own design to, to, to do the job that we had in mind for it to do. And, uh, were you thinking about it being a, another manufacturing project your dad and brother were working on? That's a very good question. For us, it was more of a design challenge hobby type project. We had no idea about getting in the, it's not as if we had a, a focus group and they told us, you know, you need to get into the more manufacturing. We were very focused on our tractor cab cooler business and that was our main business. And uh, so this was kind of a side project. And uh, we had, again, had no idea Back in those years, we built a series of a couple little cars that would get 100 miles per gallon little uh, highway cars uh, and uh, built a couple prototypes of that just, just to see what we could do. And uh, we never got to 100 miles a gallon. We got up about 70 or 80, but uh, we, that was the best we could at that time. <laughs> and we had other projects that we liked to work on just to keep ourselves entertained, I guess you'd say. Uh, that, that design urge to design and make things. and. Uh, We've always taken the track. Uh, again, don't don't make things that you can go that are already available. Make things that aren't aren't available, and uh, so that that kind of guided our pursuits. But uh, what were those early prototypes like? Well, looking at looking back at them, they were pretty crude. We built three prototypes, one each year for '77, '78, and '79. And by 1979, we had a, our third prototype, and we still have it. We can show you what it looks like, but. Uh, we took it, one of the, we, we decided, come back to Kansas again, uh, we decided to go to take the machine as a market test to the great, to the three I show in Great Bend, Kansas, that, that spring of 1979, and um, showed it to the, we thought if we'll show it to the farmers, and if the farmers think it looks good to them, that'll give us some encouragement to go ahead and maybe pursue the project. So we did, and sure enough, the farmers seemed to be really interested in the machine. We came home from that show and decided we'd make 25 machines on speculation. There were no orders, nobody had ordered anything. But we said, let's, let's build 25 and see if we can sell them. And uh, so we went to work in 1980 and built 25 of them. It took almost a year to build 25 too, because it was all a lot of hand building, very little tooling was available. But we had some connections with, going back with our days with the power truck and golf car, that, that working in powered vehicles that uh, guided us and we, we looked at some of the components that were being used by other, other manufacturers. Uh, admittedly, uh, Grasshopper, for example, had some componentry there that we ended up and used a similar component. Uh, some of the things were just as you begin to look around, you begin to find some of the things that you're looking for uh, that, that you need. And uh, so, yeah, we, we've had connections with engine manufacturers, for example, that we could uh, talk to them uh, about get, get a sample engine and you know, that, that, that sort of thing. So were you now at the home place in, in Greeley? It was the in, same, Fort, in Fort Collins. In Fort Collins, yes. okay. And then who was doing the manufacturing? The actual assembly? 
of the lawnmowers. Mm -hmm. Yes, we did that under the same roof as the cooler. We had a we had a leased building uh, in Fort Collins of 15,000 square feet. It was in a warehouse style building and we were making the coolers. That was the primary thing we were doing. We were making those every day, but we pushed off a little corner of the building, if you will, and said, we're gonna make lawnmowers over here. And we began to make them. Again, it took us a long time to build, almost a year to build 25. And, but the other thing that happened then is, okay, we got them built, we got to sell them. And uh, so we had no dealers or distributors or any kind of, nobody had ever heard of a walker mower. So interestingly enough, when we went to the farm show in Kansas, an editor of Yard and Garden magazine snapped a picture of the mower. And dad didn't remember ever even talking to the fellow, but he went home and put our, the picture and a few little notes about the machine in the new product section. Suddenly, we began to get inquiries from all over the country, because uh, that magazine had a national circulation, asking for us, you know, inquiring about the mower. We were hardly prepared to, again, we had just built these 25 machines, but uh, that began to propel things along to the point that my parents made several trips around the United States with uh, a, a couple of machines on the back of a trailer and <laughs> on a trailer <laughs> and uh, went to see people. This was during 1981. And um, one of the trips took us to Florida. It's a long ways from Florida to Colorado, but uh, I remember my dad called me the, the day after they got to Florida and one afternoon he said, I'm on my way home. And I said, well, dad, you just got to Florida. How could you already be on your way home? And he said, well, the first place we, that we went to the first place that inquired and it was a contractor. And we really hadn't thought about, it. we were thinking more about residential users instead of professional users. And, uh, but we met a man that had a contracting company who was mowing a lot of these retirement villages where there are literally millions of little units with little patches of grass in front of each one. And they were mowing those with push mowers. And when they saw our little machine, they said, well, this is the perfect machine we've been looking for. Right on that, right in that, that initial meeting, they ordered 48 of our machines. Now remember, we've only made 25. <laughs> so, and they gave us, we asked for money down to secure the order. So they gave us money. They, my dad literally uh, was in Florida about 24 hours and headed home with, with an order. <laughs> and uh, uh, there were a few other trips and we managed during 1981 to collect orders for uh, uh, 100 machines with money down. So in 1982, we made 125 machines. 100 were pre-sold and 25 for more for speculation. The next thing that happened was now the, you're starting to see some vision of where the company can go. From. Yeah, well, we're beginning to, yeah, it looks interesting uh, to us. And uh, we're still making the tractor cab coolers. But what happened in the, in the early 80s uh, is there was a recession, especially in, that hit the farm market pretty hard. Quite, it was a, a bad time, high inflation. And the company in Greeley that we'd been making these tractor cab coolers for ha got in financial trouble and uh, took in a new business partner and that new partner decided they wanted to do to manufacture the tractor cab coolers uh, th themselves instead of having us do it for them we, they would do their own own over in Greeley and uh, so we lost our contract to make the coolers in 1983 the fall of 83 and so in order to survive we had to go full-time in the lawnmower business in 1984 there was nothing left for us to do <laughs> and uh, um, 
that's the point I can tell you we nearly went broke again. Uh, I mean, just imagine you've got this steady income off of making coolers, suddenly that stops and you've got to somehow shift. On paper, we should have failed again. Um, there was just not enough money to do. It was literally a miracle. Uh, we built 450 machines that year and we sold every one of them and got paid for every one of them. And the selling is really your dad and mom traveling around, is that how? That was just to get things started. We pretty quickly, and that's kind of my area of work now in the company, even though I, I'm an engineer by, by training, we decided, and that's a, I, I think a key point to make, is that my dad always had the idea, I'm a manufacturer, I design and build machines, other people need to sell them and market them. And through the golf car, the power truck, the tractor cab cooler, which was again built for another, we learned a hard lesson. If you really want to be in control of your whole of the whole process, you need to be in control of marketing. Even though you're an artist, <laughs> that's not maybe your passion. It's still you need to be in, in control of that process. And uh, so I took on that work. It was an area again I hadn't trained for, but I began to work in developing the marketing program. Uh, we began to go, go to some trade shows, and we began to to do quite a bit of didn't have enough money to do real advertising, but we did quite a few new product announcements in publications. I helped develop some of that. And how did you know how to start doing that? Well, we met some people. Uh, one guy was a dentist that I met there in Fort Collins who was an inventor. He was a dentist and he was a, an engineer and he, he showed me how he uh, developed a press kit for his dental in devices and I just imitated what he did with and with the lawnmower. And so we got a lot of uh, publicity just by new product announcements in those couple, we just, you know, again, without a lot, spending a lot of money, we, we were able to get a lot, of, a lot of interest. We began to find that we went to a show, there, there was another show called a GIA show and it was held the first year we went to it was in, in uh, Cincinnati. And, um, that gave us national exposure to, to dealer distributors and dealers. And we began to set up a program of, of distribution, two-step program with distribution and dealers. That, that began to, as we could find the right kind of people, sometimes we made mistakes because we just didn't know better, not getting connected to the right kind of people or the right kind of dis distribution. But uh, only we began to build the program that we have today. Uh, 49 distributors around the world and about 1,200 dealers that, that sell and service our product. All that development uh, started kind of back back at that beginning point. The idea of having control of that is, I think, has been a key a key thing that has helped us succeed. We, uh, we've kept control of the process because you know, there's a lot of ways to lose control of, of your marketing and, and program by one of them is the, the you know the private label route where, you're, where somebody will come along with a larger, stronger, program and say, well, make the same product for me, only put my name on it and, you know, paint it a different color and all that. And, uh, but that's a way to quite often you lose control then of your, of your own marketing program when you, when you do things like that. You talk about, you know, having control, but you're also working now with two-step distribution and people out there selling the product. Was that something that you had to, again, take a risk on, just trust that you were making the right decision with choosing the distributors and dealers to make that success? There's risk uh, anytime when, uh, when you try to bring two parties together and we're, we're very keen on the idea of staying independent. Uh, my dad saw what it looked like when he sold the company back so many years ago, what it looked to, to lose control and to lose your independence. So we, we became uh, 
stubbornly independent in our thinking about keeping control. So that's that's been a continuing effort on our part is to try to work, be, be an independent company and also work with other independent like distributors who have that same same kind of spirit about them and, uh, and they're looking that is if we can both we both want some of the same things in terms of, of how to succeed in the, in the market and uh, we have the idea that some manufacturers some of the bigger manufacturers have enough resource they can drive a whole program and control the whole thing themselves without di distributors or in some cases even without dealers they but we we've always understood that we needed the, the partnership and in a number of ways we didn't have enough resource ourselves we were doing good just to get the machine uh, developed and manufactured let alone trying to carry the whole load uh, of getting the product from our factory door out to the with sales and service to the customer that's a that's a huge takes a lot of money a lot of capital it takes a lot of organization and infrastructure to make that happen. Again, some people are able to do that, some of the bigger manufacturers, but we understood who we were, uh, that we needed some people to partner up with and, and that we're looking for opportunities. And, and it's, it's proven itself now to be uh, work, work very well. A number of our distributors now are celebrating um, 30, some of them are right around 35 years now of working with the same the same people, and we, we, we love that. We, we treasure the, the long-term relationships that have come from, from working with people for a long time. One thing I always find interesting about family businesses is that, so you and your brother and, and other family members and dad are, are all working together and working really, really hard to make something succeed, but then you're also a family in the off time. How, you know, how, does, that, how does that work? Well, there's the family side, and that, 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 there's a balancing that has to take place, uh, in, and uh, it's not always easy. A lot of families can't even get along together well enough to, to, to even try to work, or they, when they try, they don't, aren't able. But we, we were blessed as, uh, with our family. Uh, not to say it's always been easy. There's ever, by the time you have your direct bloodline, your brothers and sisters, and, but then, then you marry and you've got your in-law side of things. And those, bringing all that together and trying to make it a cohesive, Sure, that that's something that uh, uh, each fa each one of ours, my brother, and he, I mean, he has his family, and I have mine. But uh, and we don't necessarily socially, we're not spending a lot of time with each other. We we do share in our in a number of other ways. My brother and I end up we attend the same church, for example. So we there's a church life that kind of brings us together too. And uh, anyway, I can't, especially in the beginning years, I was trying to do you know some engineering. And there was a point where I, I understood that I needed to get out of my brother's way and let him do what he does so well and, and, and find things that I could do that, to contribute. And I don't think my engineering training was wasted. It's just that I've ended up in some other, other areas that uh, have been very interesting to me. And I've been, been and my brother again continues to, to do what he does so well. And uh, so we've made a lot of progress working together 43 years, we've worked together. Well, and you're also now competing with some of those big names that you talked about. And so what was that like to um, trying to show how your machine is different? One of the interesting things is that when we first came to the market, there was about a 15-year period before the big guys discovered steering levers. So we, we and Grasshopper and XL and several others who were early with steering with ZTR designs, 
we were given a, a grace period of that many years before the big, the bigger John Deere, Toro, uh, Jacobson type companies began to say, okay, well, I guess we better have steering levers too. And that period really gave us, uh, we couldn't do today what, what we did then because the market's very crowded with with the styles of the, the machines, but that those 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 were years we were able to build a place for ourselves in the market, and it hasn't been it hasn't been taken away. We try to play to our strengths as a smaller company compared to some of the big guys. It's true they have tremendous resources and could you know pretty easily drive us out of business if that was their if their choice. But uh, we continue to try to be uh, agile, to be innovators. Uh, and leaders in, in design and innovation. One of the innovations that we did pretty quickly was uh, uh, we were early adopters of fuel injection engines. When they first became available, the Kohler Engine Company came to us in 1998. We, uh, and actually maybe the year before, began to, to test and put, a, and by 19, 1998, we introduced fuel injection engines into our lineup. The big guys were several, a number of years later before they adopted. And so that, that is an illustration of how, how you can compete as a smaller company is to stay ahead. And, and we, we're, we're still do, trying to do that. I'm Michael Ellis, publisher of Rural Lifestyle Dealer Magazine. If you build or sell equipment to the rural lifestyle type customer, you'll also want to check out our Rural Lifestyle Dealer podcast, free to get the latest in sales, service, and marketing ideas for this unique and growing customer base. Search Rural Lifestyle Dealer on your favorite podcast station and give us a listen in this monthly podcast release. Now, back to your Farm Equipment Magazine podcast. Some of those other innovations where you think that being a smaller company and, and you know, having the design expertise all in-house there with you and your family. What some other innovations can come to mind since those early 80s now? Well, we've, um, we came into the market as, as machines primarily that were grass collection machines. And that has been and continues to be a niche in the market. It's not, it's not as a, a real big niche, but it's a niche. And it's, it's actually quite a nice, interesting niche for us. But we realize there's a lot of places that do not want to collect grass, a lot of applications where that's not required. So we've gone back now and introduced a whole line of, of products that are non-collection machines, which are simpler machines and cost less. And, and uh, that's been a whole... And from an innovation point of view, we've stayed with, uh, there's two styles of machines, the, the, front, the front cut machine or the front mount machine and the mid mount. Back in the early days, both the machines were kind of equally popular. Uh, but what happened is the market began to shift away from front mount toward mid mount. And, and, and so to the point that today, we and Grasshopper are the only two companies that continue to make front mount machines front mount with the deck mounted out in front of the of the power unit and uh, um, all everyone else has gone over to the mid mount style machine we uh, from an innovation point we've we've continued to focus on on that style of machine and believe that that's where we we could make a mid mount like everybody else but we've we've decided to try to be specialists and 
in the front mount style machine. And uh, there's a number of, of it's, a, it's a more expensive machine by inherent design, some design parts of it. It costs more to build a front mount, but there are so many nice benefits that come with it. So we have to be, uh, uh, be able to sell and, and, and show our customers what, what are those benefits and why, should, why you should pay more to, to get more. Uh, a front mount machine generally gives a better uh, deck uh, terrain following capability where the deck moves, articulates uh, separately from the tractor or the power unit. And so it follows the ground contours very nicely. Some of the mid mounts do not do that very nicely and they tend to skip and scalp. So that's a, uh, we, and of course people love the, the tilt up deck. Our, all of our decks have a uh, joint so you can unlock it and the deck tilts up for access to the underside without having to lay down or lift the tractor up in the air. And so that's, uh, that's a, key, a key benefit that people like with the front mount machine. And, so when did all of the, the change with the attachments come in? We really pretty early on began to, because of the front mount style lends itself to mounting things on front. So, and we had always designed our machines with a quick change capability. That is, you could quickly remove the mower deck, just a couple pins and pull the deck off and put something else on in, in its place. And, and so we began to pretty quickly think about, and early, early on had snow blowers and dozer blades and, and items that would f slip right on in place and give you that year seasonal. In some parts where the snow can be an important part of use. Yeah, the, it's, it's easy to do and it just adds another dimension of, of value to the, to the investment in the product. Can you talk about just really now how the, the mower is positioned, uh, the company is positioned and, and where you see things going from here? Definitely the main parts of the market were fairly small market share. Uh, it's an interesting share to us, but it, uh, in the overall scheme of things, uh, we position ourselves on the high side of the market. We've always, it's in our bloodline, uh, we've always been the kind of people that when we look at things, we think of value. And so we, we tend, when we try to create a product, we try to create a product that we would like to buy ourselves. So the machine reflects our personality, which basically is show me how uh, something that I, I can get, if I'll pay more, I can get, some, I can get more. And uh, show me something like that, and I will pay more, because that's the kind of, that's just how I'm made. And uh, so we've tried to make our machines like that. So that puts us at the, again, at the, kind of the high end of the market. And uh, we realize there's, you know, there's people who would love to have one of our machines, but they just can't, they, they don't have enough income or resource to, to be able to buy them. Interestingly enough, we sell about 30% of our machines to private owners. And uh, you'd think, uh, you know, ten, fifteen thousand dollars $15,000 lawnmowers, uh, no, nobody would ever buy them. But the truth is there's a, there's a whole group of people out there in the United States and other places around the world who like to do their own mowing. And uh, mowing is a passion for them. Instead of buying a, a camper or a boat or an airplane, they buy lawnmowers. And uh, that's, their, that's their deal. And so we, we have that kind of customer or clientele that, that buy our, our machines. Contractors are still our biggest market, about, uh, about 60% go to contractors. And, uh, anyway, we fit into the market again in kind of a, I guess I would call it a high-end niche with the front-style machine. 
we think of ourselves as a specialist or a specialty company making, not trying to necessarily make product for the, the mass market or the high volume side of the business. So as these new entrants come into the zero turn market and lower market, it sounds like it's something that's not really something you're concerned about. We're not, we're not trying to, you know, our, we, don't, we don't get caught up in the idea of trying to participate with the every, by having something that everybody else already has. We're, again, it's not that we couldn't do that. We just have strategically chosen to, to position ourselves and try to make, as you walk around and look at the market and look at what's out there, uh, again, there's a lot of machines that are quite similar there in terms of their the way they're put together and they're kind of just different colors of paint, you know, so to speak. But uh, we've tried to, and we'll continue to try to create uh, unique designs and uh, machines we believe that are, that give the best performance and value that uh, that we can for the, there's lots of uh, more innovations that are coming. I think, you know, that we keep thinking, well, okay, we've been doing this for this many years. We must have everything figured out, uh, but, but it just keeps, uh, it just keeps going, the, the opportunities uh, for new technology. And again, we're trying to keep our eyes open on, on that sort of thing. And so can you give us a little, little peek at some of the things that you're looking at? We're certainly gonna wanna watch the electric powered mower uh, and battery technology that, that needs to go with that. That's something that, we, that we're interested in. We have some other designs that we're working on that. Uh, uh, we'll probably try to stretch. We, we, we talk about being in a niche, but there's nothing wrong in our minds with trying to broaden that niche out a bit, you know, both up and down, so to speak, in terms of size and performance. And uh, so we're working on, on projects on kind of in both directions uh, of that uh, at this time. One thing I thought was interesting, too, when I was reading about you and reading about the company is the values. So can you talk about that? And we, uh, yeah, we have a little card that uh, we've created that has uh, what we believe at Walker is the title of the little card, and, and we laminate that and hand it to each employee. We also have some, some big versions of that posted around the factory, uh, just stating our values. And it's a collection of things that we've learned across the years that we, we thought, uh, after living them first, talking about, what, okay, what do we believe in? And our, our Christianity has, has guided us and uh, try to apply those to work. One of our, the very first one as a, for example, well, I'll give you a couple examples. Um, one of our beliefs is love people and use money. Uh, most people kind of use it the other way around and, and straight big corporate is love money and use people. We flip that around and love, try to do our best to, to, to love people. And, uh, and money at that point is simply a tool to, uh, that, we're, that we're given to use to, to bless other people. But one of our, our first line is uh, operate with, in ways that are optimum for your employees. Do your best to take care of your employees. And we, we uh, have a number of ways we live that out. We run single shift by choice. We believe that uh, it's important to have strong families uh, and anything we can do to strengthen our families actually strengthens the company. And so therefore shift work, uh, which I gotta be careful, I'm not critical of other companies that run shifts, but for us it was a choice to say, if we can do it, we would rather let our people work uh, a, a day shift, a single shift, and then have, 
because when you go to shift work, it's it's hard on families. Uh, it, it, some people have to do it, and we're not being critical of that. But uh, it hurts families, uh, or, or oftentimes challenges families. And, and when when you get, especially rotating shifts, uh, are, are really hard. And uh, you know that's uh, that's a choice that uh, that we try to live out with uh, taking care of our employees. We do uh, plant vacation time, which is. Um, in the summertime, when in July and August, we shut the whole plant down and let everybody go on vacation, uh, be able to take that time off together without without staggering it or trying to, you know. So that's uh, another way we try to take do what's optimum for employees. I'm trying to think of any. It's on our website. We, if anybody is interested in what we believe at Walker, there's a little place you can see that 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 statement on on our website. You reached some really impressive milestones instead of in, in terms of production. Mm-hmm. It's a thrill uh, from from where we started to to think uh, you know that we've reached the we had a celebration just this past summer where we built the 150,000th lawnmower and so uh, we've been doing those celebrations uh, at 50,000 and 100,000 and now 150,000. I suppose maybe there'll be another one at 200,000. But to us. We're a company that likes to celebrate. That's that. It, uh, there's no real, you know, big, big corporate would say that's that's not a budget item for us as celebrations. But <laughs> we we like to talk of ourselves as a family style business, and family style means that uh, that you bring people together. Uh, I like to compare ours. Not that there's any real comparison, but I, I love the Harley Davidson model, where uh, they bring people together. And it doesn't matter, you know, if you're a Harley person, if you have a Harley, it doesn't matter if you're a white collar, laborer, uh, professional, a black man, white man, doesn't matter any, if you got a Harley, you're in. You're part of the, that group. That's in. And I love the way that levels out the, in a same idea, I try to create a, a Walker Moore family, which includes our immediate family, of course, but then includes all the factory workers and all their families, all of our suppliers, all of the people that provide uh, the logistics, transportation, our, our distributors, our 49 distributors, uh, 1,200 dealers, and then end customers. And so when we had our celebration, uh, we had about 2,500 people. We, however, all these folks were invited. We had 2,500 people come and celebrate with us uh, the 150,000 machine, and it, it's a high moment. We drove the 150,000 machine out the factory door on a parade route, and, and uh, <laughs> uh, everybody, uh, was excited about 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 that. Yeah. So at this family reunion, it's just. Do you know a lot of the? Uh, you'll, you would know a lot of the people in the factory, and now are you starting to know the oh, people that are coming oh, several sure. times? I've, of course, r- really we've. To, to, that's another part of being a family style is to go meet people, and uh, so I've you know personally, and not just me, but a, a number of us have traveled all over the world meeting our distributors and dealers and uh, we have an annual meeting with our distributors but then and, and some dealer meetings also that are held on an annual basis and then uh, we go to some some big you know trade shows around the world different places uh, where you know, we're in customers uh, we can meet them face to face so I know when the what I did when I, we had the family reunion I, I, I stood at the opening gate and shook hands with people for about three hours, just people coming, getting my picture taken with them, and shaking hands. And <laughs> and yes, I know a lot of I knew a lot of them from the past. It's, 
So yeah, that's, that's when it moves past just business to relationship and uh, being, uh, there's a lot of energy that flows, uh, I think. And we, in fact, we'd like to have people come into our factory and take factory tours because whenever you bring the people that make the machines together with the people that buy and use them or sell and service them, there's some energy that's created there that uh, there's, there's a, a connection that goes beyond just the mechanics of putting a machine together. And uh, yeah, it gets exciting, especially when people talk about the opportunities that have been created by the mower. The mower is not the, the whole fact, it's just part of the story, but people tell their stories about how they created business. I remember meeting a man from Arkansas. He was working in as, as a guard at a prison and it was a state job and he was doing all right. He was moving up the line. But he had the dream of, of starting his own business and, 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 a, and a mowing business. And it was something that he started kind of doing. But he finally worked up to the point of, he went to the dealer and was ready to had the money to buy another mower. And the dealer said, this mower you're looking at is, is, a, is a fine mower, but you should look at this Walker mower. And uh, well, it was quite a bit more money, but uh, the dealer talked him into it. And he said, when I went home, my wife about, you know, had a, had a fit. She, she you did what? <laughs> uh, but he, he said the, the more allowed him as a man that was wor- he was working by himself and it allowed him to be more, to, pr- to produce more work and, and to also do a higher quality type of work where he was getting paid more. And uh, when I met him, he, he had several employees, he had several mowers and it built a a nice business way way beyond I finally he was able to quit his job at the prison and you know have his own business and uh, and make a good a good livelihood for him and his and his family and some other employees too all that again the lawn the lawnmower is not the the only thing about that story but but it helped him and it was a part of a part of the story that and that's that's exciting when uh, when you're helping uh, when you're not only creating an opportunity for yourself, but you're helping create opportunities for other people. Uh, in fact, that's my favorite. When people ask, oh, why are you in business? That's a, you know, a key. Why do you do this? And the answer, some people would say, well, I'm in business to make money, make, make a lot of money. And uh, but that's to me, is not a very satisfying answer for all that you go through to be in business. If that's all you're trying to do is multiply money, that's not a very, uh, to me, a very satisfying. But... What is satisfying is thinking about creating opportunities and all that all that is done. Or to ask it this way, if this company did not exist and this product did not exist, how many lives would be affected by, by it in a positive way? We're touching a lot of people's lives with this, with this, the creation of this machine and producing it. And, uh, and it's exciting then to see, see that and get to meet the people, hear the stories. Thanks to Bob for carving out the time on a very busy opening morning of his most important show of the year. And also to Osmondson Manufacturing for supporting our time, travel, and production for these recordings. Visit them at www.osmondson.com. And a special thanks again to Lynn Wolf for her excellent interview and to Joe Kinsley at Lessiter Media for his editing work. Till next time, I'm Mike Lessiter of Farm Equipment and Rural Lifestyle Dealer Magazines signing out on How He Did It, Conversations with Ag Equipment's Entrepreneurs.